Let's pray together. Lord, we know that foolish that preaching is foolishness. And it is worthless and in vain apart from your spirit's help. So Lord, we pray that this time would not be a waste of time, but that it would be a time of your working among us through the foolishness of preaching so that we would all, Lord, be impressed with you and your word and that we might be drawn to Christ, that we might once again be reminded of the greatness and the wonder and the glory of all that he is to us, revealed to us through your precious word. And so, Holy Spirit, help us, we pray, in the moments that follow, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In his book, which I highly recommend, by the way, Instruments in the Hands of the Redeemer, Paul Tripp devotes almost an entire chapter to answering the question, how do we get to know people? He suggests that one reason that casual relationships fail to grow deeper into real intimacy is due to the fact that there are so many misunderstandings in conversations and among people. And he said one of the reasons there are so many misunderstandings is because we fail to ask and pursue other people good questions. Asking good questions, he says, is vital to helping us understand what people think and why they do what they do. Asking questions which cannot be answered without personal self-disclosure is one way to express, of course, our love and our concern for the people that we want to get to know better. And rather than assuming that we know and understand what people mean when they use certain familiar terms, Tripp suggests that we ought to ask them to define their terms and to clarify what they mean with concrete examples. So he says, using questions of all the what, the how, the where, the why, the how often, the when questions will uncover far more details than we normally would receive so that we can paint the picture more accurately as to what's really going on in that person's life, in their situation, in that person's assumptions, in that person's outlook on the events of their lives. Now I'm starting with this issue of questions because... Jesus Christ was a great question asker. Jesus Christ was highly skilled at asking questions, despite the fact that he was omniscient. That is, he knew everything. He knew what was in the thoughts and minds of other people with whom he had conversations. Despite that fact, Jesus asked questions that were aimed to bring about self-disclosure. Such questions were asked not to obtain information, that he lacked, but to help the person that he asked understand the issues of their hearts and to help move them toward change. His questions gave understanding to dull minds. They softened hardened hearts. Oftentimes his questions encouraged flagging souls and revealed stubborn unbelief. Here's a sampling of several. And by the way, I went online and there's like a hundred questions that Jesus asked. Fascinating study sometime. If you ever want to make that a Bible study, for your own benefit. Here are some questions. What do you wish me to do for you? Jesus asked. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Who do you say that I am? That's a self-revealing question. Woman, 
Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Jesus also asked, Simon, son of John, do you what? Do you love me? Not once, not twice, three times he asked that question. And then he asked a question, who touched my garments? He knew who touched the garments. The question was designed to help draw out this woman from the uh, unknowns of the crowd. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Jesus asked. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you do not do what I command? And here another one, the last one, just as a sample. Can any of you charge me with sin? The questions that Jesus asked are fascinating, it seems to me, as you think about the different audience to whom those questions were posed. Well, this morning we are clearly going to be looking at what? A question that Jesus asked. And so I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to page number 1172, if you have a pew Bible there, if you have your own Bible, Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, beginning in verse 41. We're coming now to a potentially confusing exchange. And I'll admit this, this may seem a little confusing to you as we read this through. Between Jesus and a group of his most determined opponents. The events recorded in this passage took place on Wednesday, two days prior to the day that Jesus died on the cross. And he has already been questioned now by the religious leaders, several different groups, who hope to use his words to destroy him. And now Jesus turns the tables and he's asking this group of Pharisees who have been assembled there in the temple complex several questions. Let's look at what, he, what we read here in chapter 22, verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question saying, what do you think about the Christ? Which is another way of saying the Messiah. Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, then how does David in the spirit call him Lord saying, and then he quotes from Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. I'd like to divide up my message this morning to three different questions we'll look at here. First is to look at the easy question, a rather easy, straightforward question. And then we're going to look at two scriptural questions that arise out of this text in Psalm 110. And finally, I'd like to conclude with one ultimate question that also is found in this text. Let's begin, first of all, with the easy question, whose son is the Christ or the Messiah? Essentially, when that question was asked by Jesus, he's, asked, he's asking the question, from what Jewish line was the Messiah to be descended? Which family line, which family tree will he come down and be a part of? Now, this is not a trick question at all. This was a question that would have easily been answered by any sincere Jew of that day. Numerous passages in the Hebrew Scripture prophesied that the identity of the Messiah would be a descendant of David. Uh, there are many texts I could read at this point. I'm just going to sample a few here. Second Samuel chapter 7 
is a very important text giving a promise to David. And we read in 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and following, these promises. When your days are complete, and you lie down with your fathers, which is another way of saying when David dies, I will raise up your seed, or we would understand your descendant, after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's a big promise. My loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now that's a unique promise made to David, saying that from your line and your descendants shall come a kingdom and a king, in a sense, that will live and reign uh, forever. Now Psalm 89 also made clear the Messiah would be a unique descendant of David. We read there in Psalm 89, verse 34, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed forever and build upon build up your throne to all generations. There's a promise of a king that's coming through the Davidic line that's going to reign forever. And these prophecies and many others convinced the Jews of Jesus' day that the Messiah would be an ancestor of David. This was so widely known that Jesus refers to this in Mark chapter 12 when he acknowledges that the scribes who had by that time become experts in the interpretation of the law during what was called the intertestamental time, the the 400 years of silence between the last prophet and uh, the first century, they had become the experts. And so they had affirmed that the Messiah was the son of David. So Jesus says, the scribes say that the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David. It was commonly known that that's the case. So the question was really a really simple question to answer. To add to that, that's from just reading Old Testament and Hebrew Scripture evidence. During the New Testament era, evidence was in place to prove that Jesus met the qualifications to be the son of David. And up until the year of 70 A.D., meticulous genealogical records were kept not by the Mormons. They're real big into genealogical records now. I don't know if you know that, but they're real big. If you go on the web, they have all kinds of records that they have accumulated for various reasons that they think that's important. But we're talking about the genealogical records of the first century were kept in the temple complex up until the time the temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D. And Matthew draws from this vast resource of information and and technical uh, records of ancestry, which was extremely important for them. They kept it meticulously because they wanted to know who was from the tribes of Levi and all these different things they needed to know. Matthew began his gospel with Jesus' ancestry, you recall, providing us Joseph's side of the family tree. Look back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, and notice how he starts off the gospel in Matthew 1, verse 1. He begins with the affirmation. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, that's straightforward, and he gives... A further substantiation of that is he lists some, not all, not a complete an, uh, ancestral or genealogical uh, uh, record, but he makes it clear that it goes all the way back. He has the connections going back to David and even back to Abraham. Now, not everybody was convinced by the evidence that was put forth. We read in Matthew chapter 12 of a very disturbing 
reaction of, to Jesus when he demonstrated his divine power, it's really quite troubling. If you look at Matthew chapter 12, look at verse 22 to 24. Looking at the issue of, was there evidence to show that Jesus was indeed the son of David? All right, here we go. Then verse 12, Matthew 12, verse 22, excuse me. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him. That's huge. It's a big, amazing demonstration of spiritual power over the evil forces. So that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? They're trying to put it all together, saying, whoa, this looks like something that would be clearly this Davidic promised one coming from the line of David. Is this the guy? But when the Pharisees heard this, interestingly enough, the Pharisees, now the same group to whom Jesus asked this question, the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by... The ruler of demons. So the Pharisees see this clear evidence and they, the crowd goes one direction. They're going the other direction with the same evidence. It's clear that the Pharisees had no problem affirming that the Messiah was the son of David, whoever that was. But they completely rejected the idea that Jesus' ancestry bore witness to the fact that he was a descendant of David and that he was qualified to be the Messiah. They totally rejected that, dismissed it. They will affirm, yes, the Messiah is the son of David, but that doesn't apply to this Jesus from Nazareth. Some people refuse to see the obvious, and some people would say, who needs evidence when your mind's made up? So for Jesus to ask the question to the Pharisees, he got an easy question, he got an easy answer, boom, it's the son of David. But let's follow up and notice what Jesus does next. He provides really two scriptural questions. I, I probably put one in your notes there, but it's really two scriptural questions. And he follows up with a question that says, in Matthew 22, he says, how does David in the Spirit call the Messiah Lord? Now, he's asking these questions intending to show that the Scriptures, the Hebrew Scriptures, which the Pharisees would adhere to, they would concur that these are indeed the Word of God. He goes back and he cites Psalm 110, indicating that the Messiah would not merely have ancestry that goes back directly to the royal lineage of David, but he also has a divine nature. That's what Jesus is now going to try to show them that the Hebrew Scriptures affirm. He did this by asking this question now from Psalm 110. If you got your Bible, you might want to look at that, or you can just look at the quote right here from Matthew 22. But notice this psalm. It clearly indicates in the superscription over Psalm 110, before you even get to the psalm, it says a psalm of David. And Jesus cites that and says, this is written by David, and we know it for sure. He's concurring with that, and he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now notice that Jesus, when he makes this statement, affirms now that this is uh, inspired by God, it is David writing, and, he's, and therefore it's not surprising that Psalm 110 and Psalm 118 are the most frequently incited psalms in the New Testament. 
There's something special going on in these books as it's forward-looking, messianic-looking, and indeed uh, God's revealed word about what will happen regarding the Messiah. Now notice it seems a little confusing when you read it. Verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, all this Lord thing becomes confusing, but I want us to see if we can try to just untangle a little bit so you can clearly understand what's being said here. We're not reading it in Hebrew, which may make it a little bit more clear if we did. And I want you to watch here. The first word that appears there, uh, the Lord said to my Lord. Let's look at the first one. The Lord with capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. How many of you have that in your Bible translation It's all caps, the first one, the Lord. Okay, many of you do. That indicates in English that the translators want you to know that there are a number of names for God. This particular name that appears in the Hebrew is the word, uh, the name Yahweh, also known as Jehovah. So anytime you see the word Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it indicates the, the Hebrew name Yahweh is being used. I am who I am, the self-existent one. Now, the second Lord does not have all those capitals. It has capital L and then O-R-D. Right? How many of you have that in your Bible, the second one? This says, my Lord. Okay. That indicates another Hebrew name is being used, and this is the name Adonai. The word Adonai can be translated it was used uh, as someone used that term to speak to joseph at one point someone used that term to speak to pharaoh it literally means master commander owner ruler so what he's saying here is the first one yahweh says to my master which would indicate and we would understand the my lord adonai refers to the messiah So what are we saying? Jesus challenged the Pharisees to notice carefully how David is referring to the Messiah. David calls the Messiah not merely his son, but he calls him his Lord, his master. Now, that would indicate, and if you keep reading through the psalm, you realize that this this one he's talking about, this son of his, is one who's going to look at verse 1. will be seated at the right hand of Yahweh. To be seated at the right hand of God is another way of designating the Messiah to be equal in rank, equal with authority with God. And so he's adding to that description the prediction that the Messiah will vanquish all of his enemies. And those of us who read the New Testament, those of us who see Jesus as the fulfillment of this messianic prophecy would understand that Jesus is vanquishing the enemies, the ultimate enemies of sin and death and Satan. And you'll notice then the word my Lord in verse 1 refers to a king whose reign will exceed the scope of King King David's reign. And rather than suggesting that Messiah is merely a descendant of David, Psalm 10 predicts that the Messiah is David's Lord. A father is always considered greater than his son. But no father would ever call his son Lord. And so anybody who's reading that, and for Jesus to bring this up, raises all sorts of questions and concerns like, whoa, this is really highly unusual for this to appear. And that's why Jesus says in verse 45, back in Matthew 22, if David calls him Lord, Master, how can he be his son? 
there's something amazing going on here in Psalm 110. David pays homage to a greater king who is to come after him called the son of David. Now Psalm 110 is quite amazing to get your attention to start begin to make them think, well, maybe I really don't really fully understand all this messianic role uh, of the one who's to come. But notice how Jesus also, there's much evidence in the New Testament uh, in which we see the evidence of the Messiah being God, being uh, a deity. The scriptures Jesus quoted were not merely inspirational musings of some sort of unknown songwriter, but they were the writings of King David who were superintended by the Holy Spirit. And so God-breathed scriptures are vital to convince anyone of Jesus' true identity. I can sit here and describe to you who Jesus is and create Jesus and however I want him to be and present him to you, but it's the scriptures that are absolutely essential to help us define and understand who Jesus really is. And the people of Jesus' generation observed numerous works of power as evidence of Jesus' divinity. And the Apostle John saw some of that evidence, and he brings it all together in John chapter 20, and he says this, that there were many signs that Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, book of John. But these have been written, John 20, 30, 31, these have been written that you may believe that what? Jesus is the Christ, which is another way of saying what? Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That is, He is divine. He did things that only God could do. That's what John's trying to prove as he brings all this evidence to bear in his gospel and that believing you might have life in His name. So let's go back and just summarize what we're trying to say here. We're trying to say that the Pharisees had plenty of evidence. The evidence was in Psalm 110. The evidence was in Jesus' many miracles and displays of power. They had seen Jesus show his power over disease, over demons, over death. And he reminded them of the inspired testimony of Psalm 110, that the Messiah would have a divine nature along with human ancestry that would go all the way back to King David. The Messiah is the Son of God. He's also the Son of David. Now that brings us to the next point, and that is, what would the Pharisees respond? That's the evidence laid out there. But what was their response to this inquiry of Jesus and asking them the question to get them to go back into Psalm 110? It's what you're hearing right now. Silence. They had nothing to say. They did not answer because most likely they didn't want to admit that Jesus was right. They didn't answer because they didn't want to concede that Jesus had correctly interpreted the text and the text is right there in front of them. Psalm 110. So they refused to admit that Jesus was indeed the Son of God and the Son of David. If they agreed with the clear teaching of Scripture, then they would have compelled, been compelled to do what? To yield to His authority. They would have had to, they would have had to say, we do not have ultimate authority. You're the one who has ultimate authority because you are the Messiah. And the last thing they wanted to do was give up their quote-unquote authoritative status and submit to Jesus' authority as the supreme divine Messiah. And could it be at this point now, we've reached this pinnacle of this opposition that's going between these two. 
They've had it back and forth with these questions. And Jesus' supreme wisdom has revealed how little they know. And now he's pointed them back to scriptures again to clarify something they really should have known they didn't know. And so what he's done by exposing them one more time in this public place within the confines of the temple complex, I wonder if it reached the point now where they said, okay, it's pretty obvious that Jesus sets forth evidence that he is deity, he is the Messiah, and the more we talk to him, the more obvious it's becoming. And so it's not surprising in that sense that two days later, they seize the opportunity to eliminate Jesus by crying out for his crucifixion because he was about to really make it so obviously clear they would be shown to be the frauds and the phonies that they really were. But guess what? They couldn't discredit Jesus. Even after crucifying him, Jesus trumped them and all those who sought to have him destroyed by triumphantly rising from the dead. And that is the ultimate, what? Beginning of throwing off and defeating all these enemies. Now what do we make of all this? Let's bring this down. Most people have no objections to a mere human Jesus. If Jesus is merely human, nobody's going to have any kind of strong objection to that if you affirm that. Many people are comfortable with Jesus if we just understand Him to be a wise teacher and a good prophet. But the Jesus of the Bible is not merely the Son of David. He is God in human flesh. He is the ruler and king over all creation. And His authority extends over all that He has made. And if you read the Scripture, we understand that Jesus has made everything. There's nothing that exists that hasn't been made by Jesus. Therefore, He is the one who is supreme over all, and everyone one day will admit that Jesus Christ is the Lord and supreme Master over all. Yesterday's Newsday had a column, which sometimes I peruse, called The God Squad. And here we have Rabbi Mark Gelman. And the question in the post to him was, Uh, I received many versions of the same question that was given to him. Do Jews believe that Jesus did not perform the miracles of the Bible? The Bible claims that he did. On the other hand, if Jews do do believe Jesus performed miracles and healed hundreds of people, why don't they believe that he is the Son of God? That was the question. His answer to begin with was, only the Christian New Testament and not the Hebrew Bible talks of Jesus performing miracles. Jews, Hindus, others don't accept the New Testament as God's word. And on he goes. He basically just dismisses the whole eyewitness accounts and the historical reliability of the record of Jews who saw Jesus, the Jew, in performing these works of miracles. He just dismisses all that. Well, I go back and I say again, Jesus is citing uh, Psalm 110. He's citing the Hebrew Scriptures. How many indications are there in the Hebrew Scriptures all pointing back, pointing to Jesus? If you just look at them uh, uh, again, Isaiah 53, all these things keep pointing into a person to fulfill them. Who is that person fulfilling them? It raises lots of questions. And again, uh, Gelman at the end of his little column here says, well, when people ask me if I believe Jesus was the Son of God, I try to say in a friendly but firm way, I don't believe he was. But after we die, we will all know for sure. 
I will say that if Jesus was the Messiah, this is still here, I'm quoting. If Jesus was the Messiah, you may well hear the distant echo of my voice after my death, calling out from another world, Oy vey! He leaves open the room that he may not get that one straight. At least he's honest to have that acknowledgement to say, maybe I am wrong, but it'll all be clear someday. The Pharisees wouldn't even give a budge any kind of indication that they might have been wrong. Not a bit. And many people won't. But here's what I want to bring this down for you and me. That's Mark Gelman. Let's talk about us right here. Is your view of Jesus shaped primarily by your own assumptions and your own opinions? Do you conceive of Jesus based upon what makes sense to you and your assumptions? Or is it based on the inspired writings of the eyewitness accounts of the New Testament and the Hebrew Scriptures? Is your view of Jesus shaped primarily by human reason? So that everything has to add up in your mind and you've sort of got it into a box and it all makes sense to you. And I wonder, can you defend your view of Jesus by the teachings of Scripture? Or have you merely just adopted what someone else has told you and you just sort of rattle it off and that's the way you understand who He really is? You see, it's interesting that Years ago, a guy by the name of Bernard Ram, who was an apologist, a person defending the faith, the Christian faith, wrote a book called Christian, Protestant Christian Evidences. And he raised a question and said, if God became incarnate, if God took on human flesh, what kind of man would he be? It's a good question. And he answered it in six simple, succinct ways. He said this, We would expect Him to be sinless. We would expect Him to be holy. We would expect Him to have profound power over human personality. We would expect Him to exert and be able to perform supernatural doings. And we would expect Him to manifest the love of God. And he goes on to say, Of all human beings who have ever lived, Jesus Christ alone met all of those criteria. You say, well, I wish people around me could see it. I wish they could finally understand who Jesus is. You say, oh, my thinking has changed over the years. I've become more convinced. I've seen it more clearly. You say, I just wish others could see it. My friend, it is miraculous when people do. It's interesting to think that so many people were silenced. The Sadducees were silenced in verse 34. Verse 46 of the text says, The Pharisees, no one dared to ask him any more questions. It's interesting to see how God ultimately will silence all of those who had objections and all of those who were looking to find fault and criticize or disbelieve. It's interesting to see how things can be radically changed because three years after Jesus was unjustly put to death, just three years, one of His highly devoted Pharisees, abandoned his views that he had been raised with, that he had been taught growing up by the rabbis of his day. His name was Saul of Tarsus. And Saul of Tarsus was asked one day when he was seeking to put in his place all those who were followers 
of the way, followers of Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, and they're causing so much craziness and they were destroying the, the Jewish proper way of expressing their faith. And so here is Saul of Tarsus on his way. He is humbled by a bright light. He's down on his knees. And here's the, the voice of the one who has overcome death. He hears the Son of God, Son of Man speak to him. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul became Paul and he wrote remarkable affirmations about who Jesus really was. And one of those is found in your bulletin, which I would just direct your attention to at the top of the order of service there. You'll notice we read the affirmation from Romans chapter 1. Paul says, The gospel of God concerning His Son, Jesus Christ, who was born of the seed of David. Does that sound familiar? Born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. He's got the ancestral line, the genealogical connections to David. Who was declared with power to be, what? The Son of God. How do we know He's the Son of God? By the resurrection from the dead. According to the Spirit of Holiness, Jesus Christ, our Master. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ, our King. God is able to turn people who have opposed and who have refused to see the real Jesus, He can open their eyes to see the true Son of God and Son of David. We are unable to do that, but God has the power to do it. Our responsibility is just to make it known. Our responsibility is to ask good questions. Our responsibility is to gauge people to say, have you ever considered, have you ever read it? One of the things I like about Christianity Explored, which, by the way, we hope to offer again in our church in March of 2012, is that the process by which people are encouraged to examine the claims and person of Jesus Christ is to just read it themselves. Just read it. Read the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to talk about it each week. We're going to think it through. What did Jesus really say? What did He do? Why did He come? Who really was Jesus? It's amazing how when you present it before them, that even the Holy Spirit can open the eyes of skeptics and scoffers and cynics if we just lay it out there and trust Him to do His work. So those were the two scriptural questions. I want to lead us now to our last question I want us to consider this morning. <laughs> the ultimate question. What do you think of Jesus the Messiah? What do you think of Jesus. What do you think of his ministry? The one who came and spoke truth and displayed grace for everybody to see. What do you make of his person, his sinless character? He never abused his power. He never took advantage of his supremacy over all things. What do you make of his unlimited power in creating all of creation? His unbounded love that gave Himself for sinners like you and me. What do you think of Jesus and His tender-hearted compassion that refused to ignore our plight? His immeasurable wisdom that taught us that no person has ever taught like Jesus taught. What do you make of His eternal nature, the fact that He never had a beginning? He always existed. What do you make of His comprehensive knowledge in that He understands and knows every thought, every deed, everything you've ever said. He knows all about us. He knows all the details that are going on 
in, in every one of us, in our little sphere, our little world that we live in. Yet He still loves us. What about His incomparable sufferings that led Him to undergo one of the most painful processes of capital punishment the world has ever invented? What do you think of Jesus and His indestructible joy? A joy that would never go away, that continued to look forward to the glory that awaited Him when He went through so much agony and suffering. His mind-boggling sacrifice to rescue sinners and conquer Satan. His miraculous resurrection from the dead, which provides us hope, hope that we need to all who are united to Him by faith. I wonder, my friend, what do you think of the Messiah? Is your view of the Messiah based on your feelings of what you feel about Him? Or based on what the Scriptures say and teach us is really true about Him? How many people walk around and say, <clears throat> I don't really think God loves me. Jesus doesn't love me. He wouldn't have done, He wouldn't have allowed X, Y, and Z. Or this wouldn't, I wouldn't feel this way. Or this wouldn't have happened. My friend, it says in the text of Scripture, He loved you and gave Himself up for you. Do you believe what it says in the Word? Or you don't go and basically assuming that it's by your own internal subjective feelings that you make reality and determine who is Jesus? Are you amazed by Him? Do you ever ponder and say to yourself, my little puny mind can't grasp all of His greatness and the wonders of Jesus Christ. My heart is overflowing as I try to imagine all the wonders and glories and blessings that have come from Him. Or do you find yourself like the Pharisees saying, well, I have nothing else to say, so I'm going to go on and live my life, draw my own conclusions, Live with my narrow-minded thinking? Or will you say, no, I want to honestly adore Him. I want to be amazed by Him. My heart longs to enjoy Him, to appreciate Him and delight in Him. Is your view of Jesus a scriptural, biblical view? Or is it somebody else's view that you somehow latched onto that may or may not be accurate? I encourage you, don't rest with what I say. Read the Word. Ask the Lord to say, show me Jesus. I want to see Him. I want to know Him. I want to be wowed and blown away by the One who is the Son of David, descended from the King of David, but also the Son of God, who came to seek and save those who are lost. Let's pray. Our Father, we bow before You and we acknowledge that... Uh, your word goes very deep. It goes over our heads sometimes, Lord. And this text can sometimes be confusing. We're talking about different names for God and different ways we use capital letters and small letters. And we've gotten some really detailed things today, Lord. But I just pray that you would cause the big picture to be clearly seen. That we would once again ask ourselves, what do you think? about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Lord, for some of us, we would answer that question, we would have to say, I don't know a lot about Him. I've had people tell me about Him. I've had different people try to instruct me different things, but I really don't know for sure. I've never really looked at the evidence myself. I, Lord, I pray today that those people will have a greater thirst and a greater longing to look more carefully into who Jesus really is. I pray, Lord, that You would impress upon their hearts that they... 
rather than just living in silence and not asking more questions, I pray that you'd fill their hearts with questions. That they would look into your word and you would help them to see Jesus Christ revealed in the pages of your word. For those of us, Lord, who may be able to affirm certain doctrinal truths about Jesus, our theology may be good. And those of us who are here on a regular basis and we're doing all the right things like the Pharisees, Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to truly have hearts that are moved by and gripped with the wonder of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that you might, dwell, uh, you might cause our hearts to well over in love, in worship, in adoration, a sense of awe over Jesus Christ that would lead us, Lord, to have a desire to want to submit to Him, to want to yield ourselves to Him, to bow before Him, and to defer to His plan and His way and His truth. And that we would joyfully and lovingly follow Him and yield ourselves, our time and our values. Everything is shaped by Him. Lord, I pray that You would help us to see that the, the revealing questions of Christ are meant to reveal our hearts as well. Holy Spirit, may You reveal them and may You speak to us and may You help us, we pray, wherever we are. To those who come this day, Lord, help them. Those who say, oh, I can say Jesus loves me, but they really don't believe it. They really don't claim it. They really don't embrace it by faith. I pray, Lord, you would draw them into the love of Christ even this day, into the life of Christ, into the truth of Christ. Do your work, we pray, Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.